Let's pray. Heavenly Father, were it not for Calvary, we would be lost in sin. But how grateful we are for your magnificent salvation, justification, and then sanctification and ultimately glorification. Lord, as we look into your word now, we thank you that it stands up to the questions we might have. We thank you that it speaks truth to all areas that it addresses. And I pray you'd help me, Lord, to uh, provide biblical answers to my brothers' and sisters' questions that are of such a good and solid nature this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The questions that I'll be answering tonight have been submitted to me over the weeks, and I'll just say we'll have another Bible question and answer, uh, God willing, coming up. And if you have a Bible question, you can email me, or you can phone me, or you can ask me the question in person, and uh, trust that we can find some answers to our questions from God's Word. The first question this evening, we'll be moving around the Bible a lot, in John 5, verse 24, what does it mean to believe? In John 5, verse 24, what does it mean to believe? John 5, 24 is the Lord Jesus' own words. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And the questioner wants to know what it means to believe. First of all, to answer the question, we really need to understand that because the Gospel of John is the one book of the 66 books of the Bible which expressly states that it was written to tell someone how to gain eternal life, that's what it says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, the words believe, belief, believing, appear 98 times in the Gospel of John, the one book of the Bible expressly stating that it's been written that we might know eternal life. Basically, saving belief involves three things. Factual knowledge, mental assent or agreement with that factual knowledge, and full trust. If you do not have all three, you do not have saving faith. You have not believed in Jesus. Factual knowledge, mental assent or agreement, and full trust. Let me illustrate. If you are on a sinking ship and there is an unused life jacket, you can have factual knowledge of what that is. It's a life jacket, but that will not save you from drowning. You can have mental assent that the life jacket is capable of saving your life but that will not save you from drowning. You can have full trust in the life jacket, and you demonstrate it when you put it on. Now you have saving faith in the life jacket. For you have factual knowledge about it, you have mental assent regarding it, and you have full trust in it. What is belief? Factual knowledge about Jesus' person and work, Mental assent that it's true and full trust in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Second question, how do Christians discern and help our children and teens or those we mentor decipher and make wise choices about magic and the supernatural that we are exposed to through various forms of media? For instance, Charlie Charlie 
Ouija boards, luck, horoscopes, fairy tales, myths, mythological creatures, fantasy like the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, X-Men, and its use of uh, telepathy, telepathy, cartoons for little kids like My Little Pony and Sophia the First that contain magic crystals, good and bad witches, fairies, sorcerers, amulets, spell books, etc., etc., etc. Very good practical question. Answer. There, of course, is such a thing as magic and bad supernatural powers they source in Satan. They are real powers, but they are powers inferior to God's power. If you go with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. You have, excuse me, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He who is in the believer is the Holy Spirit. He who is in the world, the unregenerate world, is Satan. This is clearly saying that Satan has power, but not power that exceeds God's power. Now, nine scriptures stand out to me as being helpful when it comes to best discerning and helping and guiding our children about these kinds of things the questioner is wondering about. Still in 1 John 4, look at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are to test the spirits. How do we do that? We compare what they claim to what the Bible says is appropriate. Let's go on to some other verses to use to answer this question. Hebrews 5, verse 14. Hebrews 5, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid spiritual food, whether you're a youngster or a teenager or an adult, is for those who practice and have senses trained to discern good and evil. If you are a parent of children who might be exposed to the things in the questioner's list, you need to mature yourself in the Lord because of practice, have your senses trained to discern good and evil. Still with the answer to this question, John 7, verse 24, Jesus' words, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge a questionable thing by just how it looks. Rather, judge things you need to evaluate with righteous judgment. How do you have righteous judgment? by adhering to the Bible, letting it be the arbiter, the final say. Still answering this good question, 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. For such men 
are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Let me just interject. Some of these things can come across as so cute, so pretty. My Little Pony, Sophia the First, fairies. Do not judge things according merely to their appearance. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen again. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. All that glitters is not gold in children's literature and DVDs. First Thessalonians 5, still answering this good question. We're evaluating these things that have so powers. How do we evaluate them? How do we understand them? How should we respond as parents? First Thessalonians 5, verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In some cases, you can only know what's evil and what's good if you spend time studying it out in God's word. How do we respond? Matthew 24, verse 24. Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. This is predicting that in the future there will be those who are false Christs. They will claim to be Christ and there will be false prophets claiming to be true prophets. They will arise and watch this. They will show great signs and powers. Through demonic power, they will be able to do impressive things that might convince you that they really are Jesus or they really are prophets of Jesus. The things that were listed by the questioner, some of them have power. Ouija boards have power. They can answer questions correctly, but it's demonic. It's not God's power. Ephesians 5, verse 10 Ephesians 5, verse 10. How do we evaluate things that are supposedly going to entertain our children? Ephesians 5, verse 8, let's pick it. No, verse 7, let's pick it up there. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you formerly were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We learn what is pleasing to the Lord by reading, studying, giving proper attention to His Holy Word. Galatians 5, 16-21 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh set its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Some of these things are enticing. Some of these things are really attractive to children. Verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's magic, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not enter the kingdom of God." And the last reference I'd like for your consideration as you evaluate these children's entertainments is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. This is the capstone of all the verses I've shared. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And so if you look at anything on that list and you ask yourself, does this show God off to be as great as he is, then probably it's acceptable. But if it tends to compete with God's glory for crystals or fairies or Ouija boards or whatever, If it's not showcasing the greatness and the power and the holiness of God, then it isn't for your children. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I really appreciate the question. Third question, are there any female angels? Matthew 22 Angels are genderless. Matthew 22, 23 to 30. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, may interject, that's why they were sad, you see. They couldn't believe in resurrection. On that day, some were Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him, questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. I'd be checking the soup. (laughs) And last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Angels are genderless. They often appear to be male in the Scriptures, 
but they are genderless. Question. Does Isaiah 53, verse 5, teach that Christ shed blood provides physical healing? Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he, Messiah, Christ, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. No, that verse is not teaching that the shed blood of Christ buys for us physical healing. The healing in reference and context here is spiritual healing. It's healing from sin. It's healing from sin's penalty, healing from sin's power, healing from sin's pleasure, healing from sin's presence. That's what's in the atonement. A sin remedy, not a physical ailment remedy. First Peter on this. First Peter 2, verse 24. And he himself, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. What were you healed from? Look at the first part of the verse. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus shed his blood to deal with our sins, not our diseases. I know of no place in Scripture where the blood of Christ was prayed to cover and to take away physical illness. There are lots of people in the Old and the New Testaments who are physically ill, but never do you read in Scripture that an apostle prayed the blood of Christ over an illness. A prime example of this is the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 12, his thorn in the flesh. Scripture doesn't tell us what his thorn in the flesh was. I have a guess. I can't be certain. But 2 Corinthians 12, let me turn there first. Remember when he was on the road to Damascus and he saw the risen Christ and he was temporarily blinded? I think his thorn in the flesh was eye problems. Because later in the New Testament, when he was writing with passion against legalism in the book of Galatians, at the end he says, I take my pen from my scribe and I see with what large letters I'm writing. I think he was writing with large letters because he couldn't see, except he did. That's my guess. I can't be emphatic. could be wrong. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul saw some exceptionally rare revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me and to keep me from exalting myself. Now, if he recognized whatever this thorn in the flesh was, a physical ailment, wouldn't you think if the blood of Christ could have helped, he would have prayed the blood of Christ on his thorn in the flesh? doesn't say he did that. He prayed, but no reference to the blood of Christ. We go on. 
Verse 8, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Does Isaiah 53, 5 teach that Christ's shed blood provides physical healing? I would say no. You'll never hear me pray the blood of Christ over cancer or leukemia or any other disease. I'll pray for the sick, but not with asking the blood of Christ to heal them. Question five, is it biblical for believing laymen to water baptize or it is only proper, proper for ordained clergymen to baptize others? Well, of course, Scripture does not directly address the question, but Scripture does indicate that there is a priesthood of all born-again persons. First Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2, 9, listen. But you, believers who who read the book of 1 Peter initially, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, This is teaching that there is a priesthood for every born-again Christian. We are a priest if we're male. We are a priestess if we are female Christian. And so because there is this priesthood of believers, I see that the reading or the quoting of Scripture from the baptistry as taking authority in the Word, so I personally would not be comfortable with a sister in Christ baptizing in the baptistry or in the sea because she's taking would be taking authority in God's word over men. But I do understand that there is a priesthood of believers and that a believing male could quote scripture in the sea or in the baptistry and could baptize a person. Maybe a male who has had the privilege of leading the person being baptized to saving faith in Christ. I've seen this happen with a father who led his son to salvation in Jesus, and he asked, could I baptize my son? Yes. By the way, if you want a reference to look up concerning God's teaching on females having not to have authority in the Scriptures over males, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 would teach that. Sixth question. Is Christmas observance commanded of the church? It's an interesting question. No, it isn't. We are commanded to observe and to remember the Lord's death and resurrection. We aren't commanded to remember his birth, as precious as his birth is. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are taught in this passage that the Lord's table is a repeated ordinance. The frequency of the repetition is somewhat free. There's not a stipulation that it should be weekly. There's not a stipulation it should be monthly. But local assemblies decide what is appropriate in the frequency of the Lord's table. But we are commanded to remember the Lord Jesus' uh, death and resurrection through communion. But I know of nowhere in Scripture that we're commanded to to uh, celebrate Christmas. I have nothing against celebrating Christmas. It's a wonderful thing. But we aren't commanded in the Bible to do it. Seventh question. Comment on generational sin. Generational sin is a concept that the sins of the fathers are visited on the subsequent generations. It's uh, a sinning past history that has impact by way of almost like a curse on subsequent um, family members. Please comment on generational sin. Well, let's look at Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands and to those who love me and keep my commandments. Numbers 14. Verse 18. Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generations. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Children in Deuteronomy 24.16 are not punished for their parents' sins. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, says the same. Ezekiel 18, 19, 32. It's a long passage. 
Ezekiel 18, starting at verse 19. Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity when the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them because he shall surely live? The person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor the Father bears the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all of his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely believe and he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? If you read the passage, verses 19 to 32, it's teaching that there is no such thing as previous generations' sin impacting by way of a curse, a generational curse, subsequent generations. So I wonder if this is an evidence of progressive revelation that the first three passages I read, were for, light was further thrown upon them by subsequent passages. The first three passages I read, two were in Exodus and one was in Numbers, and then the one that says that that is not the case is Deuteronomy 24.16 and Ezekiel 18.19-32. Could it be that in this case, as in many others, there is a progression of revelation in God progresses to show us his will in certain areas. I think that's what's going on. What I can say, though, is that Galatians 6, 7 in the New Testament applies. Galatians 6, 7 applies to this question. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. So what we can say I am saying I do not believe the Scriptures teach generational sin, but what we can say and must say, the children are impacted by causational implications of their parents' sins. Let me give you an example. If you are a baby in the womb of a mother that drinks alcohol, there's a very good chance you'll be born with fetal alcohol syndrome and have it all your life. That is an example where God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever man sows, he also will reap. Cause, effect. By the way, the United States of America is mocking God right now. Do not be deceived, America. Now I'm an American citizen. Do not be deceived, America. God is not mocked. For whatever a country sows, it will also reap. Sometimes, in light of this principle of Galatians 6-7, sometimes generational sin drills wickedness so deep that it takes several generations to reverse the wickedness. But I do not see that as generational sin. It's cause and effect. An example of that would be human slavery in the American South. That sin was so embedded in those states of the United States. Took an Abraham Lincoln, a man of conviction and courage, in the Civil War, a bloody Civil War. 
to stop the cause and effect of that sin of human slavery in America. So if you're a believer in Christ tonight, and your grandfather was a scoundrel, your father abused you, maybe even claimed to be a Christian when he did it, you do not need to wonder, brother or sister, if you are cursed by God based on your forefathers' sins. Because Romans 1.8 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 assures, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You do not have to worry about whether the sins of your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your father are being visited on you and as a judgment from God if you're a Christian. Question eight. My friend's beliefs and understanding are that Jesus is one of the ascended masters and all the masters are friends in heaven. My friend believes that Jesus came to assist us in raising our consciousness. But Muhammad and Buddha can do the same just as well as Jesus. Growing in love for oneself and in love with others is the point. My friend holds precious the ascended master, Saint Teresa, because she raised my friend's, watch it, vibrational energies. Vibrational energies. Question continues. We all have multiple connections and they're all fine. One connection to have is with Jesus. We have to respect the path that anyone takes. We have to be in an accepting state to move on in a right way. With compassion, we are going on to a new world of beauty and love. This faith system is called Theosophical Society. Theosophical Society. It was founded by Madame Blavatsky in the late 1800s. It adds Jesus on to a range of enlightened yogis or ascended masters, such as Confucius, Buddha, the Virgin Mary, St. Paul, Melchizedek, Archangel Michael, Metatron, Quan Yin, Saint Germain, etc. The faith system has an initiation and then four stages of spiritual development which are to be passed through by multiple incarnations. You die, you get another life, you come through another enlightenment through these ascended masters that Jesus might be one of them. This is really a cousin to Buddhism. Theosophical society is a kissing cousin with Buddhism. 
Well, first of all, Jesus Christ is not at all okay with being an equal with anybody. Jesus Christ is not okay with being an equal with other masters. That is not an option that Jesus has left open. You know the verse, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other way but Jesus. No other truth but Jesus. No other eternal life but Jesus. Jesus is not okay with being equal with ascended masters. This is not an option he left open. And vibrational energies assume a close linkage to creation is the ideal. The problem is creation has fallen into sin. (laughs) Creation has a sin problem. Vibrational energies linking up with creation is not a good thing. Creation is currently fallen into sin. Romans 8, 18 to 25. How to respond to this dear soul who's so misguided. So misguided in a pluralistic view of acceptance of all kinds of religions. How do we minister to such a person that's off the track and doesn't even know that there's only one track? Fanny Crosby gives us the response. Verse 3, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. Buddhism says that Jesus is one of The Bible says that Jesus is the one and only. Buddhism says that cords are fine. The Bible says the cords are broken. Unapologetically, lovingly and with kindness and prayer, share with this misguided soul that Jesus will take no place with any others that claim to be equal with him. Question 9. In John 20, verse 17, the risen Christ said to Mary, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But in John 20, verse 27, just 10 verses later, the risen Christ said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand into my side. The question is, why the difference? Why did the risen Christ say to Mary, stop clinging to me, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father? But ten verses later, the risen Christ said to Thomas, reach your finger and see my hands and reach here in your hand and into my side. Why is the difference? Here's the difference. Mary's desire was to hang on for dear life so as to prevent the Lord Jesus from physically leaving her again. So he referenced his ascension as he taught her that he would physically be leaving her again relatively soon. Stop clinging, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but I'm going to. Thomas, on the other hand, he needed the facts to believe in the resurrection. So Jesus graciously invited him to touch him, 
so that he would believe. That's the gracious Savior we know. Accommodation to a man's doubt. A willingness to let a doubtful person believe. Maybe you're here tonight and you're struggling to believe in Jesus to be your Savior. He loves you. He's died for you. He's raised from the dead for you. He's the one and only. And he is willing and able to save you from sin, make you new, reserve a home in heaven for you. Trust him and only him to be your Savior tonight. These are the nine questions that were submitted. I think they're all excellent questions. I already have two questions submitted for the next Bible question and answer. One is, should we not give our business to businesses who are openly owned by gays or to businesses which are openly pro-gay? Should we not give our business to these businesses? Second question will take up God willing next questions night. Why does God require blood to cover sin? You guys have a lot of good questions, and you make me study and learn to answer them. If you have questions that come up, and I hope you will, I hope you would email me or phone me or tell me in person what your question is, and I'll be happy to try to research and get you a Bible answer the next time we have a Bible question and answer. I'm so glad we have a Bible that can stand up to questions, aren't you? A Bible that gives us the truth that we can confidently stand on, that not only shows us how to be saved, but shows us how to live after we're saved, how to think, what to approve, what to disapprove. I'm so grateful for such a Bible and for such a God that would reveal such a Bible to us so graciously. Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this church has been founded on the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And for over 50 years, we have stood on Jesus. And we know, Lord, by your grace and enabling, we will continue to do so until he gathers us up in the rapture return. But Lord, a big part of standing on Jesus Christ is to stand on his word. Because that word tells us forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We thank you that we do not have to work and pray to make your word relevant, but we thank you that your word is relevant. We thank you that your word speaks to our lives in such a way that we want to touch the page of the Bible to see if the ink is still wet. Lord, help us to not neglect the treasure of your word. Help us to read it individually help us to read it with our spouses help us to read it with our children who are still at home lord raise up even more workers in this church to teach the bible to little children to all ages lord bless vacation bible school it starts tomorrow as children come to have fun but help them to learn of you through your word when their bible lessons come give them a holy hush to pay attention, to be still, to let you speak to them through the Bible. Lord, dismiss us now with your love as our way of living, with a burden in our hearts for lost people that we'd let down our nets, and with a total 
deep dependence upon you that is reflected in how much we pray. Thank you for bringing us together tonight. Thank you for the blessing of singing about your word and then giving attention to your word. And I ask you to bless each brother and sister who's bowed together in the presence of a holy God. Bless them, Lord. Use them. For I ask this in Jesus' name and God's church said, Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.